Hello and welcome back to the Fat Man and Little Boy podcast. This is a discussion podcast about movies, both new and old. I am joined by my podcasting partner and film soulmate. Steve, how are you doing? Howdy, partner. (laughs) Terrible. Uh, The reason Steve (laughs) said that is because today we're doing the Western genre. Steve and I have picked um, three Western movies, not each, but in total, that we love, um, that we want to talk about today. And, you know, I find the Western genre to be fascinating because I think... You know, the Western genre is a little bit different from the mobster genre in that great Westerns are almost never about the West itself. They they hardly ever deal in the minutia of what it's like to get a wagon and go out West and... (laughs) You know, nobody learns really how to fire a gun. Change a wheel. Yeah, change a wheel. wheel. Exactly. Although in one of our movies, right. somebody changes a wheel. Although I think that, um, you know, when it comes to mobster movies, especially if we talk about Goodfellas, you can really make a great mobster movie that's just about the mob, like just about this other world that lies in the shadows that you've you know never been acquainted with. And while there may be some, you know, thematical elements there that are different from others um, or that, you know, speak to our need to sort of, you know, get involved and be interested in mobster movies, the movie itself is still primarily illuminating the mob, as were the West. great Westerns are almost never about that. Steve, what do you think about Westerns? Well, good Westerns. Yeah, good, good Westerns. westerns are. Good Westerns. Well, I was going to ask you, where do you think the Western comes from? Is it completely an original genre it's it's not really authorian legend like you think uh i think it is do you yeah i I think when it comes to america Mm -hmm. we especially you know i think in the 1950s it probably i think the west sort of reached its pinnacle in Mm -hmm. american pop culture um but i do think it's authority i think it's more of the it, it appears to be more of the making of america than even the colonial period I think it's almost sort of opposite of a Thorian legend in that, you know, the Thorian legend was about giving power yeah. and seeing what power uh, does to mm-hmm. people. This, uh, the Westerns usually are predicated on people who don't want to be ruled over at all. Yeah, sure. Who, who completely reject, um, uh, you know, king and, king and country. Right. The sto- even country, even country. Yeah, the story say. devices are totally different. Yeah. But what they are is they are the origin stories of the nation. Okay. They yeah, talk about enough. they talk fair about enough. the yeah. character of the nation, yeah. and I suppose for some reason the character of America is get dirty, get a gun, go out west, <laughs> seek your fortune, kill anyone who stands in the way. <laughs> <laughs> you said get dirty. You know, if 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 movies had the ability to convey smell, no one would ever go see a western because yeah, these right. guys aren't taking baths very often unless no, they get no. dunked in the river. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> okay, so it's funny that we're talking about um, you know what Westerns represent and, you know, sort of their place in American cinematic history. And also I think in American, um, um, psychiatric history in a way, like our, our feelings on the country itself. I think in some ways, you know, Steve and I often agree that movies don't affect real life at all, right? They just aren't, they're not that important. They're, they're wonderful as art and they inform us as people and they allow us to feel and emote. But generally, I don't think they do much to affect politics in any kind of way. But I do think that Western movies have largely informed us on the history of the West in terms of what we think it looks like and how it feels. Yes, I, I think it's true. Uh, me and my brother went out to Vegas one time. It's first time he had ever been in the West, right? <laughs> yeah. And just looking at the landscape, even though he had seen Westerns before, he couldn't believe that, you know, the frontier people came with wagons, yeah, you know? Yeah. You just assume that it's going to be a lot easier. There, there, there's the myth there, you yeah. know? You forget about the tough stuff it took to, to settle this, this land, and you have to focus on the myth, the psychology, you know, good versus evil. Okay, so 
it's funny because now we're talking about sort of, you know, what the traditional rep- Western represents. But Steve, one of your two picks isn't a traditional Western at all. <laughs> it's a crazy little movie I've never heard of before until you recommended it to me called Barbarossa, starring of all people, Willie Nelson and Gary Busey. How about How's that for a pair? Uh, it's, isn't that you a know great what? pair? It works. It's a great pair. Um, this was back in when um, Gary Busey was still an actor and wasn't known as, you know, for, for his craziness. Right. He hadn't, yeah. he hadn't become that person. Before he, was still before he became really... a drug addict. I mean, let's just be real. The Gary Busey we see it today is the really hardcore, lifelong effects of severe drug addiction. But because he's kind of wacky about it, everybody, you know, kind of tries to gloss over what it really is, which this guy. He's cracked out of his head. I mean, his his brain is just, you know that, you know, the, the egg being fried in the pan? That really is Gary Busey's brain. Um, <laughs> if you want to see Gary Busey before, the before and after, yeah. this movie is terrific. He's still fresh yeah. and young. Oh, he's fresh-faced for sure. He's, he's this huge, bulky yeah. guy. He's lumbering. And yet he is so... He's so innocent, especially compared to the world worry uh, Willie Nelson character. So it's my unfortunate um, privilege and duty to have to describe these movies. Sorry. So, <laughs> You're better at it. <laughs> so Barbarossa, what it basically is about is an outlaw named Barbarossa of dubious ethnic uh, um, you know, distinction. I'm not really sure what race Willie Nelson is supposed to be in this movie. Let's call it Irish... Uh, Native American, German, and yeah. throw in... Possibly Mexican. Uh, <laughs> throw in Mexican, sure. Why so not? basically, he's an outlaw who lives in Mexico, and what he does is he commits very sort of petty, small robberies against the people of this small town. But in a weird way, what this movie is basically about is this small town's entire identity is the pursuit of trying to catch and kill Barbarossa. <laughs> He's a legend to them, um, and in many ways, he f- the search for him for vengeance for whatever reason for his robberies and or some legendary killings he's made of a few of them in the past create the identity of the town. And the town is literally it's almost like a treasure hunt in which young men go out and they try to find Barbarossa to kill him. And it's really it's almost like a game uh, to them. And Barbarossa himself loves it. He loves the legend that he grows for himself in this town by committing what are really just petty crimes. They're not, you know, his his reputation sort of staked on the fact he killed some people in the past. But you don't really hear of him killing too many people in the recent past. Well, anyways, the movie starts where Gary Busey, who is a very young, fresh-faced Gary Busey, accidentally kills his brother-in-law, and he's got to flee South Texas, and he goes into Mexico, where he happens to run along into Barbarossa, and of course, Barbarossa essentially just picks him up as sort of a, an un, it's kind of like a, an older man taking on a young sidekick, but doesn't really want him around, but secretly does. But what this movie's about is not what this movie's about. But I have no idea what this movie's about. So, Steve, you tell me what this movie's about. Oh, you got me. <laughs> no, I, I think this movie is, you know, about myth. Okay. And you and people who watch this will understand the importance of myth to the Willie Nelson character at the very end. Okay. Okay. And it and it, and it grows to become very important to the Gary Busey character. Um, the funny thing is, it's true. Uh, they they rate they have this terrific scene where the old man who is. Uh, the origins of this feud with with Barbarossa, uh, because Barbarossa wanted to marry his daughter. Mm-hmm. Um, he's teaching little kids in his village yeah. to hate Barbarossa, to be scared of Barbarossa, to defeat Barbarossa, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and the young men are already there. Yeah. Um, in fact, the movie starts actually with Willie Nelson killing one of the young guys who tries to come 
and kill him. And there's this, there's this, this movie isn't, is, is hugely visual. As the young man lay dying, we find out that uh, uh, um, Barbarossa actually has very, he loves these people. Yeah. He loves these people. That's right. He wanted to join this clan when he married the daughter. The father says no. I actually think he's mostly Caucasian because the, the yeah. father really hates yeah. the idea of yeah. him marrying in. And he's, he's, he's always stayed around the periphery of this village. Well, one man, uh, one young man tries to tries to kill him. He even tries to keep him. You know, he tries to tell him, "No, don't, don't." He winds up shooting him, and as he lays dying, there's this incredible image of blood coming out of his mouth—a little trickle that goes towards his eye, like a reverse tear. It's yeah. just amazing. I don't know why it's so moving, but it's incredibly moving. He even chast uh, Barbarossa even chastises the Gary Busey character for um, you know making light of, of of the death or you know being dismissive of it. He loves these people, and he wishes he can join them, but short of that, he's going to defend himself, and he wants to stay near. He, he, every once in a while, he visits the daughter. Yeah. You know? I, I, what you find out later, um, it's important to Willie Nelson that he lives on. Right. You know? He wants his legacy to live on. He, he doesn't want the old man to win. He wants uh, some comfort for his um, wife and, as we find out, daughter. And the very last is it too late to go into the well, last? Let's let's not give anything away. Don't have, I don't want to give anything but what away. What we'll say is that it's also important for the town, whose entire identity is based off of catching Barbarossa, that they don't actually catch Barbarossa, because then the <laughs> town will no longer have an identity. They won't have a raison d'être, right? That's right. Goo, very fancy. Yes, French. In a, in a, <laughs> for a western, I could be shot. <laughs> so, but so it was funny. I said this was not a traditional western. Yet every way we've described it, I think if you were listening to this, you would say, "Well, what about this?" isn't traditional and what i'll say is if you saw butch cassidy and the sundance kid and the way that that movie was made and the tone of it and the kind of 1960s burt Bacharach, you know feel to it and score to it this movie is very similar and that's why it's not traditional um that's a good point i was going to say um butch cassidy and sundance kid really isn't traditional not at all very it it takes um you know a very light approach uh for the most part yeah you know of the western myth Westerns can be sarcastic, but they can't really be as lighthearted. It's really, if you make a lighthearted Western, you are now veering off into Butch Cassidy territory. And Butch, so I actually like Barbarossa more than Butch Cassidy. I don't love Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid. Um, I think I do like my Westerns either more romantic or more hard grizzled, but that strange sort of lighthearted 1960s approach that Butch Cassidy took. They're almost a comedy team in that movie. Yeah. Which William Goldman later said was a kind of a defect in the script. He thought he'd, he'd put in too many right. jokes. It's hard to watch Raindrops, it's hard to watch a Western with the song Raindrops <laughs> Keep Falling on My Head. And I think Barbarossa actually, it does a better job of marrying that tone with also, I think, the spaghetti Western style of Western filmmaking. I think it owes more to Sergio Leone, who I don't even know if any of his movies have come out yet. But it owes, it owes more to the spaghetti Western style of, of, of make of Western filmmaking than it does to John Ford and John Wayne. No, I, I definitely agree with that. The, the, the characters are, are, are... Well, the kid isn't very heroic. No. and He becomes um, heroic. He does. Yeah. He does, due to the influence. Mm-hmm. You know, uh uh, Barbarossa has a huge impact, has a huge impact on him. As we see yeah. at the very end, he wants to continue on, you know, the legacy of, of, of Barbarossa. That's right. Yeah. Uh, I, I just love the interplay of these two characters. I think that's what this movie has to offer the most. Yeah. Is, you know, the, you know, the reluctant teacher. 
yeah. you know, the, the puppy dog kid who follows him along wants to learn from him. You yeah. know, there's a lot to be said. But it has, you know, it doesn't ignore the, the Western trappings, you no. know. The sets are really, really amazing. Uh, it's, it's a fine movie. It's a fun movie. It's a short movie. It's right. only like an hour and a half. Yeah, it's extremely short. And by yeah. the way, everything we just talked about, that sort of butch casting, the Sundance kid tone, that sort of light, hippie, 60s tone in this Western is also perfectly represented by Willie Nelson himself, who was not the prototypical country singer. Because that lighthearted, sort of hippie Western um, tone is what Woody Nelson is in country music. Woody Nelson is not um, Hank Williams, right? He is he is the the hippie country star. You know, he was he represented a different kind of country music, which was really, I guess what I, I don't want to keep saying the word hippie, but more beatnik. Yeah. You know, more liberal, more sort of anti-war and anti-violence, so to speak. It's true. You know, you, you kind of startle when um, you know he has so much regret at the beginning for yeah. killing this young man. But later, a few scenes later, he understands if Gary Busey wants to take vengeance on a pair of sons his father-in-law sent to track him down, mm-hmm. and he almost does it cavalierly. If you want to kill him, I, I understand. Right. So, so he's not like he, he's he's of his time. He's of that time. Yeah. Okay. Not necessarily of our time. And I do respect that. You know? And I think we have to talk about um, Willie Nelson as a real actor because he's great in this movie. He's he a, is terrific. I always say, you know, sometimes when we praise non-actors who get film roles, who do just good enough, and then there are some non-actors who can actually act, who are legitimate, or like, okay, this person is a legitimate actor. They have the ability to act. They, I'm not, doesn't mean they have to have studied anything, but they have that ability. And, you know, I once saw this movie Thief, um, Michael Mann's, maybe his first film, but certainly his, um, his, his, uh, I guess his, his rough draft of the movie Heat. And Woody Nelson's in a short scene in that movie, and he's fantastic. That's right, he plays, um, he plays, I think, uh, he James, plays James Conn's mentor in prison. And I remember, I think he's it was- very touching in that. Yeah, and I think Roger Ebert's review of the movie, one of his criticisms was there was not enough Willie Nelson in it because Willie Nelson was so good in it. So I think, that was only like a year, yeah. I think a year or two, because I think that came out in eighty, and, and Barbarossa came out in eighty two. Yeah. So he he was doing, he was doing some fine work. So here are some here are some singers who are also legitimate actors. Cher, there's no question, Cher can act. Yeah. And also Lady Gaga. I'm that not, didn't last long, by the way. Her ability to act on movies didn't last long, but, but she when could she do was it. doing, yes, she, she could do it. Yes. And Lady Gaga, look, I'm no Lady Gaga music fan, but I saw A Star Is Born, not a movie I loved, but I recognize when somebody can act, and yeah. she could act. And it's always, I think, you know, one of my favorite things, and I think we've talked about this before, is when you get great performances out of non-actors. It just tickles me. I don't know why. I always love to see it. Um, Woody Nelson's great in this movie. There's some superb cinematography in this movie, and this movie really feels like an independent Western. I mean, this this feels like they made this movie with a, you know, with a budget of a million dollars or less and just hired all their friends, and they did it, but it definitely feels that way. The movie didn't make a dime. I don't oh, know. It's shocker. It's, yeah. But your favorite, Paul and Kale, liked it. When, when I went to go see this movie, um, actually, me and my brother went to go see a movie, and the movie we were going to see, I forget what it was, got, uh, you know, it sold out. So we asked the guy, hey, uh, what about this Barbarossa? Mm-hmm. Uh, do you think that's any good? And he said, the last showing, n- there was nobody in the theater. And so yeah. we didn't we didn't go see it. That's the that best reason to go. That is the best <laughs> reason to go see a movie. I've, I've seen some movies in, uh, poorly attended that weren't great either, but... And and that is a crime. I don't know. I don't know what studio put this out. I think there was some controversy about how it was managed. 
it, it is a crime that this movie wasn't better uh, presented to the audience because it, it, it's just a very pleasurable movie. It, it doesn't have huge, massive themes, but mm-hmm. the themes it sticks to, you know, tradition, um, uh, you know, uh, hero worshiping, let's face it. Yeah. Um, they're they're very intelligently made. This, this was directed by Fred Shepesy, and he was part of this this Australian group coming over, with, like with Peter Weir and mm-hmm. Bruce Barraford, and, and they were doing fantastic movies over in Australia. They, they came and did some terrific and stuff. And that's going that's going to be important later because yes, it it's funny you mentioned the Australian because we got another Australian who's an important part of this podcast. Um, I think we're gonna I think we're gonna move forward from Barbarossa uh, because our last movie is going to take a lot of time. So, any other final words on Barbarossa? No, but go see it. It has been uh, badly publicized 38 years ago. Now it's time to go but see it. But you know it. what? I think it has like a 97% on Rotten Tomatoes. Now, I don't care. It should. I don't care about be. Rotten Tomatoes at all. Mm-hmm. But there is something to be said if a movie like this is not the Marvel movies, right? So, if this movie's got 97% <laughs> to it, it's clearly charming and people clearly like it. All right. Next film on the list, Steve, was also your choice. It is called Winchester 44? Winchester 73. Excuse me. I, I'm, not, I don't, I'm not a gun aficionado. I'm not particularly either, but uh, yeah, I think, uh, I believe it, it refers, to, I'm not 100% sure that it refers to the year it was put out, 1873. Right. I'm not 100% sure. I, mean, I think it would make sense. I think yeah. it would have to be. So I'm going to do my best to describe this movie. I think it was made in the 50s. Correct me if I'm wrong. Uh, it came out in 1950. Okay, so here's what it's about. Um, the main character, played by Jimmy Stewart of all people, comes into a town uh, for a basically a gun shooting accuracy tournament where the prize is the greatest gun made at the time, which is a Winchester 73, which is essentially a rifle. And this town is holding a tournament to see who is the best shot in the town. And so it's not a duel. No one's killing each other. They're just shooting, you know, at targets. And whoever wins this tournament will, uh, will basically, you know, win this rifle and he runs across another guy in the town who he clearly has a history with or a beef with. And it turns out that Jimmy Stewart and this guy who he has a beef with are going to be the two best shots in the town. Um, this is how the movie opens up. Now, one of the really crazy things about this movie is it just drops Wyatt Earp in it. For <laughs> I have no idea what the historical accuracy of this is at all, but the sheriff of the town is Wyatt Earp. And Wyatt Earp is also the guy who's sort of hosting the tournament. And what he basically says is that anybody in his town has to drop their guns off at the sheriff's station because he doesn't permit any violence in his town. And um, by the way, this is very similar to Unforgiven in a weird way, only it's not presented in this movie as any kind of tyranny. Right, dropping your guns off in the town isn't presented as some sort of infringement on people's rights, which is shocking not only for a Western, but also for a movie back then. Um, Because in Unforgiven, when little Bill played by Gene Hackman requires everybody bring their, you know, guns to the sheriff's house. It's definitely an infringement on people's rights. Well, anyway, so they do this shooting tournament and uh, Jimmy Stewart wins. And they give him the Winchester and the guy he beats, who's also his enemy, and you don't know why, uh, basically is fleeing town and Jimmy Stewart wants to get out of town as quickly as possible because he wants to get this guy. He's not really in the town for the gun tournament. He's in the town to get this guy. Yeah, he'd been hot on his trail. Exactly. And it, it led him to this to this town. Yeah. So basically, because Jimmy Stewart's gun is in the uh, sheriff's station, his enemy assaults him while he's in his like hotel room and steals his Winchester 73. So not only does he have to track down his enemy in order to, you know, get his gun back, but he's also tracking him down 
for an act of vengeance for a crime I'm not going to spoil. Um, this movie is surprising because it has a surprise ending, and most Westerns don't deal in surprise endings, but this movie has it. Here's what I want to talk about when it comes to this movie. In terms of story and plot and themes, I couldn't care at all. Now, that's not to say they're bad, right? The thing I love about this movie, and I'm going to get super technical here, more than we usually get in this technical in this podcast, is it represents a type of photography that is just not done any anymore. And what is it is, is imagine I sit a camera on a tripod. It's at about five feet high, and it's at about maybe 36 millimeters of focal length. So it's pretty wide. And I say, you've got 10 people, a couple horses, you know, maybe a wagon, and frame these people in this very standard straight on shot, right? No fancy angles. You know, it's just, it's, it's the most sort of eye level and normal width shot you could possibly do. Frame these people, stage them in the shot so it's interesting. So imagine it's like a play and you're going to take a photograph of the play. And this is a type of photography that, it's a, it's a type of, it's not even photography, it's staging. It's the staging of your actors and your set pieces within the frame and it's an art that's lost where everybody's in focus so they're not playing around no no it's not like one guy's super in focus and everything behind him's blurred like a telephoto shot right it's more somebody took the time to say to themselves how do i make a shot where it's not the angle or the focal length that's important but it's how i physically place these people and i think that art has been lost and i think that the more sophisticated the cinematographers get with cameras and lighting and, you know, focal lengths and the effects of all of this, the more they lose that sort of ability to stage people in the frame. Yeah, I, mean, I don't think it's very showy at all. No, you know? but, but it, but it it's works. Intelli- yes, yeah, it's, it's, it's intelligently blocked, absolutely. But also, it's, it's fun. It's fun when you see that many people in a frame and they're all in focus, and there's such a attention to detail okay i'm gonna put this guy here at the far left because he's the tallest then we're gonna go down shorter shorter shortest to shortest in the middle and then we're gonna go back up again left left to right where we the, the next tallest guy will be at the end of the line i mean there's such an intention to detail into how they frame these people and what they look like in the frame itself and and just you know it's it's like a great photograph that you take of people in a time right if, if it's almost like photojournalism where it's not about technique it's about capturing an image that conveys something. And I and I think it's been lost in modern movies. And it's something I love about black and white movies from the 50s where they didn't fuss as much over the lenses and the lighting and the angle. And they fussed a lot more on how do we present this so it looks like you're watching it on a stage. Yeah, I think, that, you know, by this time movies had, had moved across that, you know, uh, moved beyond that best shot in the theater thing where you yeah. basically had a series of class pictures yeah where you would you know you have to balance the images you see yeah. you know and and where they are could definitely mean something you know it's hard to make movies about community in general and it doesn't have to mean like about a good community but where people are together when you don't have that many people in your frame and i think that the 1950s did a really good job of putting a lot of people in the frame all at once and i think that's been lost in a weird way even if you see movies now some guys in new york city he might be. It might be a telephoto shot, right? Where we're at, let's say, uh, you know, 150 millimeters focal length, but the camera is 100 feet away from the protagonist, so he's in a crowd of people, and everyone's blurred but him because oh, he's so isolated <laughs> amongst all these people. But you just rarely see 10 people in one shot anymore, where every single person is as important as the person next to them. Yeah, technique has become you know so 
eye-catching yeah. that we respect, we, 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 we marvel at the technique, yeah. and then we forget that, well, it's, it's um, not really it's in service to the characters of the story. Right. And We're just supposed to be dazzled by the, by the technique. I saw, I saw this one TV series um, just recently. It was based on a Stephen King novel, HBO. I forgot what it's called. But this director had characters deliberately out of focus, and they the whole scene was out of focus, and occasionally they would walk into focus. I'd never seen anything more deliberately amateurish before in my life. It was horrible. Yeah, yeah. And th- this movie is very straightforward. I love the storytelling about this movie. Sure, sure. I think this is ma- amazing. I mean, you can go into... The very first shot of this movie is a um, store window with this... Uh, with this um, beloved extremely rare lusted after rifle in the window yeah. with a little advertising and, and cynics nowadays would say well you're just trying to sell these to little kids maybe a little air gun but you know i i don't think that's what it was you know yeah. uh we we get into this terrific contest and that contest uh there's this terrific uh, scene where they, they they keep they throw up a quarter and both the best shots hit the quarter yeah. so they decide to to get a like a washer with a you know a, a, a quarter with a it. hole in it. Yes, right. He throws it up. Uh, somebody claims he missed it and say no, I shot right through it. That's right. Now that that becomes a gag yeah. in the sixties and seventies, but this was impressive here. In order to prove it, uh, he puts a stamp in between the washer and proves that he uh, he can shoot it. The, the rifle, I guess, I hate to use saying it's a symbol, but it means a lot to different people. Yeah. James Stewart sees this as a work of beauty, just yeah. an absolute amazing, um, you know, piece of craftsmanship. But I think Steve McNally sees this differently. Steve McNally is a character who plays uh, uh, James Stewart's nemesis. Mm-hmm. He, I, I think, he sees this as part like, like maybe having a little piece of James Stewart's manhood. That's right. You know, by taking it away, I think he'd rather take it got... from him than win it from him. Yeah, <laughs> like he'd rather beat him up in a dark alley to get it <laughs> than he'd actually rather you know beat him in a contest in front of a bunch of people. He'd rather steal it than win it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he, I mean, he, he's pretty pissed off when he loses the contest, but he doesn't take it sitting down, so yeah. he steals it from him. Right, and he goes running, and and it takes a. This movie has three really interesting bad guys. One is Stephen McNally, so the straightforward So let's guy. get to that in regards to the rifle, because you said the rifle is a symbol, but it's also a tool, because the movie does something that movies back then especially didn't do often, which is as soon as Jimmy Stewart leaves town, the rifle, basically what it does is the movie's full of little short stories that don't connect until later. So we actually leave Jimmy Stewart. We leave the main character. For oh, for. Quite extended periods yeah. of time in the movie, yeah. which you're right. Very it's, much it, like rare. the film War Horse. If anyone saw War Horse, where you think the young boy in War Horse is the main character, but the horse is, because the horse gets into adventures with new characters that are finite, and then and then eventually it all connects back together. At the end, yeah, he, he comes right. around. So this rifle, basically, the Jimmy Stewart's nemesis, he loses the rifle at one point, and then you instead of following the nemesis or Jimmy Stewart's story, you follow the rifle. And it goes on into another story where it ends up in the hands of Shelley Winters, who is, I think, the town prostitute, but they never say it explicitly. Back then, they, they called him like a dance hall. Yeah. Before that, it winds up in, in the possession of this shady, crafty, cunning uh, arms dealer. Oh, that's right. That's right. Uh, played by uh, John McIntyre. Great old character. Oh, and we actor. have to talk about something for a second. Things that can't mm-hmm. be done anymore. Um, <laughs> the arms dealer sells the rifle, amongst other weapons, to a group of American Indians who are 
playing with nobility. They're not trying to wage war just to kill people. You know, they think their land's been stolen. But the main Native American is played by Rock Hudson. It was one of his first roles. um, Absolutely. And it was, it's kind of ridiculous, but you know, he doesn't really disgrace himself. No, he he does no good job, but they give him the, but the thing that really doesn't work is they give him a fake nose. (laughs) Well, and can you imagine a white man playing an American Indian and then you give him a fake nose? I mean, Maybe, maybe you could plead your case without the fake nose. Mm-hmm. With the fake nose, you're done. You're getting yeah. canceled in the year 2020. <laughs> it's just not happening. It, 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 would, it would have been far more appropriate if, if they had hired a Native American. But the fact is, um, the speech he gives yeah. is, is pretty enlightened. You know, yeah. Um, oh, yeah. this guy, John uh, McIntyre, he's very quiet, very crafty. He's not physically imposing at all, but you can tell he's smart because he out. He outsmarts uh, Stephen McNally, mm-hmm. gets the gun away from him, takes all these shoddy, crappy um, uh, rifles, single discharge rifles to this, uh, you know, to uh, uh, this Indian, mm-hmm. uh, this Native American, and w- intends to sell him. But the Native American, he, he sees right through this. Yeah. He sees that th- this is just garbage. He can't, and, and it goes on this speech saying, you know, that's what you do. You know, white man lies, uh, well, you know, uh, the white man wants to do me sell me shoddy workmanship mm-hmm. he catches an eye he catches his eye uh the the, the winchester 17 catches his eye that's the one i won of course and, of course, and then it's this um another part of the yeah. rifle's journey yeah he gets that and kills john mcintyre but mcintyre is, is a fascinating cold-blooded um not very obvious bad guy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Completely different from. Well, he's McNally. a more realistic bad guy because oh, he's just he a is, pure-blooded capitalist. He is a with transactional. No absolutely, yeah. is a transactional um, uh, lowdown. He's uh, what really happens, you know. When <laughs> you know, when you sell cigarettes to kids, right? It's a profit. What are you going to do? Like yeah. that's what he represents, which I think is far more common in the world, let alone just America. He he he's he's, he's cold-bloodedly um, practical, which is different from the other two. Uh, the bad guys, but as you say, uh, the rifle eventually wound winds up in Shelley Winter's possession because uh, this this uh, Native American and his yeah. and his band of Indians uh, wage war on this. Um, uh, I think these group of cavalry men. Yeah, Shelley Winters, like you said, she's the um, town prostitute. Uh, she's the dance hall girl. Yeah. Let's call her dance hall girl. And she's got a, a, a brand new fiance, and they're on a wagon, and they come across these Native Americans, and he, he to use the phrase of uh, Willie Nelson in um, in Barbarossa, he ran like a speckled ass tape. <laughs> yeah, right, right. So we have to talk about Shelley Winters for a second. Um, nobody plays a Shelley Winters type quite like Shelley Winters. No. Um, and the, here's the type: smart. Sad, sarcastic, not beautiful. Just this side of attractive. Just, but not beautiful. She's, no, not beautiful. Not no. beautiful. No, it's really, yeah. and she plays, she's like the only person who can do this. I think the only lady I've seen, especially from that era who came close, was Piper Laurie, especially in The Hustler. Yeah, yeah uh, Piper Laurie, I don't think you could have called, you know, she's not a gorgeous stunner like Hollywood is used to giving us both on the male and the female side. And for that matter, neither is James Stewart. um but god shelly winters is good she's just she has this quality to her that is very rarely duplicated by anyone then or now you know she didn't like this role 
she thought, you know, um, here, here I am, a blonde, attractive woman, and all anybody can think about is that damn rifle. Yeah, right. But she's unlike a lot of the women in these westerns, where they either they they get furious with a man, yeah, and, and then they resolve it, or they stand by their man. Her fiance was going to abandon her yeah. to all these Native Americans, and she forgives him and ultimately defends him. Yeah. She, this is a deeper character than even I think she, the actress, realized. This is a very interesting character, which is I think pretty rare for westerns. Shelley Winters plays a self-aware, desperate person better than most people. She knows her predicaments. She knows her limits. She knows how people view her. Yeah. She knows she's not the prized peach in the bunch. I mean, I think it's impossible to talk about Shelley Winters without the idea of bringing up that she's not beautiful because I think they put her in roles where she knows she's not and she's got to make do for some reason because attractive men and women have it easy. Everyone gives them everything, (laughs) right? It's not just women. It's men too. And when you're not a stunner, you've got to have more skills. And she is able to portray this so well. Um... And I think they do men more justice in general in the movies where the guy may not be handsome, but he's got smarts. And I don't think they do that for women as much. You know, which which is why I think this is kind of rare. You know, yeah. you're right. She's she's very self self-knowing, you know, she yeah. um, she understands she knows the score. Yeah. Um, there's a point where uh, they're under siege. She knows the score is a great way of saying it. Yeah. She know in every movie. She knows the score. Yeah. And that's rare. She's savvy enough. Uh when they're under, when they're about to be uh, at night, um, yeah. just before dawn, and they're going to be besieged by the Native Americans, and Jamie Jim Stewart gives him a rifle, and and, she, and he says, "Make sure you leave one bullet left." Yeah, oh and my she god, she knows what I, that and means. I couldn't believe they they said that back then, which was the idea. These Native Americans, you know, unfortunately, because they will rape her, yeah. they will rape her, and he's saying, "You kill yourself before they get to you," but you know. I want to get back to some. You said she knows the score. And this is something I want to get on about movies in general. Our last podcast uh, about heist movies, uh, Duplicity. Attractive people don't know the score ever <laughs> in anything. They don't have You're to. It's possible because the score, they it don't never have comes to down know the score. To the score. Yeah. It never comes yeah. down yeah. to they the score. They don't have to know the score. They walk bliss. Some of the most <laughs> the nicest people I know in life are the most attractive people because no one's ever been mean to them. <laughs> They're not jaded. They just think everybody's nice and they are nice themselves and they don't have to trick anyone. They it's don't an entirely have, different breed. Yeah, they don't know. How, they don't need to know the score. You know, attractive people don't know the score. Stop giving me movies where the attractive, the, the, you know, the 10 with the George Clooney, the Brad Pitt, the, the Angelina Jolie, where they're also savvy. Those people are not savvy. Right? They, they, they just, oh, you want to give me a free drink at the bar? Great. I've never had to pay for anything. They probably don't even know things cost money. That kind of leads into our third villain. Dan Duryea. Yeah. Now, he he always plays the villain. I don't think I've ever seen a movie where he doesn't play the villain. And I think he's, he considers himself kind of a charmer. He's kind of a charming psychopath. Mm-hmm. He is he is completely without, I think almost totally without fear. Yeah. Um, and he wants what he wants. He's kind of like that handsome character turned on its head, you know? Yeah. He, he decides he wants Shelly Winters. He will have Shelly Winters. And he's psychotic, fight. by the way. Oh, absolutely. He's psychotic. A charming psychotic, yeah. absolutely. And it's important... Because that exact same character is essentially played in the next movie, which we won't get to yet. Um, but I want to talk about one thing. We are talking about Shelley Winters, you know, not being a traditional beauty. And, she, and she's not, but those are written into her roles. James Stewart, I didn't buy in this movie as basically like a tough, 
like ace gunfighter until he gets in a fight at the bar towards the end of the movie and he beats the man so savagely i said okay now i believe it but you know it's hard when you're watching the guy from it's a wonderful life and mr smith goes to washington to believe that he could be a cold-blooded killer in the sense that he has the toughness it takes to brutally beat a man to get what he needs and I, I really thought to myself for most of the movie, like, I love I loved Jimmy Stewart as the noble loser, mm-hmm. but I'm not buying him as, as a tough guy should be feared. But then his acting in that bar scene towards the end, he's looking for some he's looking for someone, he's he's interviewing a you know, one of the villains about where this other guy is. The guy says he won't tell him, and just Jimmy Stewart savagely beats him. And I said, Okay, that was convincing. It's interesting you should say that because, you know, my favorite site, IMDb no, Trivia, said the audiences, they, they were afraid to cast Jamie Stewart in this role because they thought the audiences would feel the same way. And okay. the audiences did feel the same yeah. way until that scene. That scene. They, they should have put it earlier. <laughs> well, he, you know, it, it's hard for them to think of him in turn. And, you know, this is a guy who, you know, had Why Harvey. Why did they make who, that who the first scene of the movie? Before he gets to the town, he could be in another bar asking where the guy is. Where his enemy is, and the guy can you know tell him to piss off, and then Jimmy Stewart can savagely beat him, and then you know he's a man not to be trifled with. I think the director Anthony Mann wanted to get the audience, keep the audience on his side. He yeah. is, he's not really the moral center. If anyone is, it's Shelley Winters. Absolutely, he's not the moral center, but he is the protagonist. He's the person that um, eventually sets things right. Okay, you know, even yeah. if he does it in a very ruthless way, yeah. even if he does it out of vengeance, he it still is. So I want, I think they wanted him. I think they wanted the audience on his side, so they weren't going to show just how tough right, he, he was. Get. And then he made another movie a couple of years later called The Naked Spur, and it's the same thing. Yeah. It's hard to believe that this this guy is just, you know... Yeah, at the same time, in Once Upon a Time in America, Sergio Leone was very smart to have Henry Fonda commit a gruesome crime... <laughs> In right the, out of the tracks. Right, <laughs> right in the first right scene of the movie, so that you yeah. have no troubles disliking Henry Fonda. So I, I don't know. <laughs> I understand. I'm also not sure the producers would have allowed the filmmaker of Winchester 73 to, um, to show that kind of brutality from James Stewart early on. But, you know, who knows? Um, any final words on this movie? Well, I, w- I was trying to think of the movie that you perfectly described Shelley Winters in, in the 50s. She made us another movie called A Place in the Sun, and it's, yeah. it's exactly this. Yeah. Well, it's not exactly the same role because she's she's like ten times more pathetic. Yeah. But she also knows Montgomery Cliff isn't going to wind up with her. He's, yeah. he's going to wind up with Elizabeth Taylor. Yeah, exactly. At least he wants to. It's a really it's a really um, a pretty interesting observation you made. The I only, thought it was dead on. The only thing I want to say about this movie is that movies just aren't made like this anymore no. in terms of their photography and their pacing and sort of their. They're, they're telling you the camera's not important. What's inside the frame is important. And we will spend as much time as possible getting every little detail right. But don't worry about how we light it. Don't worry about what angle it's at or the focal length. We're just going to have this camera sitting on a tripod and we are going to fill it with as many interesting things as possible. And I think the guys who actually come the closest to this kind of filmmaking are the Cullen brothers. Interesting, yeah. I think, you know, sure they do things, that they have more cinematic technique, but I do believe... They sort of get to the tone of 1950s filmmaking probably better than any other filmmakers because it sure isn't Michael Mann or Ridley Scott or Steven Spielberg. You know, those guys love the modern playground. They refuse to limit themselves, you know, to play within a more strict um, confines and as a result, pay more attention to set design and 
clothing design and just where you place people in the frame. I think this is um, really dense storytelling. You said um, they don't make movies like this yeah. anymore. They didn't make movies like this back then. I okay. think this was a very revolutionary uh, 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 Western. But I, did I think people know that? Um, it was a huge hit. Okay, it was. In, in fact, okay. it was his first, it was Stewart's, uh, I think, first really huge post-war hit after okay. he came back from World War II. Gotcha. Um, but I think they were reacting to something different. They were reacting mm-hmm. to the, the lack of convention in this movie. Okay. All right, so and, and I think as people start, it influenced movies to be a little more realistic, uh, a little more challenging. Westerns, anyway. Gotcha. So now we're going to go on to my pick. Um, today we're only doing three movies because the third movie is not a movie at all. Um, the third movie is a miniseries from, I believe, the late 80s called Lonesome Dove. Lonesome Dove is based off a Pulitzer Prize winning book. Um, and here's what I want to say about Lonesome Dove just from the get-go. It's probably one of my favorite things ever. Not just in Westerns, but in all entertainment. Um, what it is, is, and, and Robert Duvall is on the record saying this, when the team got together to make Lonesome Dove, he was very hyper aware. He said, we are making the godfather of Westerns. It's four episodes long. Each episode is about 90 minutes, and it's about six hours in total. But what it is, is just its plot, it's an epic journey of two former Texas Rangers who um, spent a lot of their, you know, their the the prime of their lives chasing Indians of Native Americans out of territory that white people wanted to settle, and then once that that sort of that war was over that that American Indian uh, war, they settled down and ran a really poor ass you know <laughs> um, cattle ranch I'm cow horse ranch in a place called Lonesome Dove Texas which is just a nothing town right on the border of I think uh, right on the border of Mexico yeah. And then one day, an old friend from the Rangers comes along and he says to them, "Hey, Montana's the place to go to. You got to see Montana. It's a it's a rancher's paradise. We can get some cattle and we can drive it from Texas all the way up to Montana, and we can strike our fortunes." And the two men, uh, Captain Call, who is the silent brooding type, and Augustus McRae, played by um, Robert Duvall. I'm sorry, Captain Call is played by Tommy Lee Jones. They decide to go up, but they don't go up to actually strike it rich. They go up for the last journey of their lives. And what it is, it's it's a Homerian epic odyssey of America at that time. But it represents so much more than that. I watched this movie, and the last two episodes, I'm in tears for almost the entirety of all of them. And it's not because they're sad, although they are sad at times. The movie is just so unbelievably beautiful and i don't mean from just looking at it although it's unbelievable it's gorgeous to look at it's one of the most cinematic things you'll ever see on television but it gets at something greater which is life this movie is about aging and death and living and living life to its fullest and having adventures and getting out of ruts and taking risks and it is just a world-class piece of heartfelt sentimental entertainment you're not gonna find works of filmmaking that are so anti-Kubrickian, if that's a word, you know, anti-David uh, Fincherian, you know, where it's all about heart. It's all about sentimentality. It's about friendship. It's about long-lost love. It's about adventure. It's about growing old. It's about courage. It's about cowardice. It's about justice. It's about crime. I mean, this movie just works the entire gamut of human emotions, and I just love it. I could not love it anymore. It's interesting you say it's anti-Kubrick because the guy who did the cinematography for this movie okay. hit me. Shot um, 
uh, Full Metal Jacket. Fantastic movie. Yeah. Um, and you know, it's it's interesting, you know, you brought it before the Australians who made, did, did they make Winchester or did they make Barbarossa? Barbarossa. Barbarossa. That was uh, Fred, Fred Shepesey. The only yeah. Western that I know that he made, he has made some phenomenal movies. One of the most intelligent directors. So the director of this movie is actually an Australian. And I was really fascinated by the idea that this Australian, he really understood American Westerns, John Ford style Westerns, better than maybe an American could have. Because he had an outside view of it. He's able to see the culture from the outside and sort of understand what makes it special what makes it horrific, what makes it brutal, what makes it beautiful. And it's interesting because there's a great oral history on this miniseries, and apparently Robert Duvall, who had a lot at stake in this, um, he gave the director a really hard time the entire time. Really? I, I don't know. But man, I mean, in terms of directing, he just knocked it out of the park. All the performances are amazing. I will go on record right now. I will say it's Robert Duvall's best performance. Hands down. I, I I don't think there's a better Robert Duvall performance out there. I think his role in, as Augustus McRae, who's really the main character of the series, is one of the most fantastic roles any actor will ever get to do. It's one of the, it's one of the great characters of yeah. all time. And then the movie is littered with fantastic side actors who will eventually become critically acclaimed in their own right. It's got Chris Cooper in it, who plays a sheriff who is tracking... Um, a killer from Arkansas all the way down to Texas. It's got Steve Buscemi playing a really, a real Steve Buscemi type, yeah. a real <laughs> dirty guy. If you rubbed up against him, you'd want to uh, have a shower. And the then, character, yeah, not Steve Buscemi. It's got Angelica Houston who play, and she's famous by this time. Yeah, but she's playing, um, she's playing Augustus McRae's long lost love. Um, who else is? It's got so it's Diane got some, Lane. It's got, oh just, my god, she's fantastic. Just a beautiful performance. Yeah. Um, uh, and, you know, it's funny. Diane Lane, an actress who really should have gotten more in yeah. her career. I mean, I don't I don't uh, pity rich people, um, <laughs> but we could have gotten more better roles from her because she's so good. Um, who else is in the movie? So it's got, so it's got some... Danny t- Glover. Danny Glover. Just as he was becoming huge. Yeah. Who um, plays one of the um, most pure characters, like pure heart characters you'll ever see without it being trite. You know, without it being um, a mockery or, you know, too overly sentimental. Um, it's got Ricky Schroeder. They want it, apparently, in the production of this miniseries, it was really strange. The producers and the financiers of it said, because it's going to be on television, you have to have television stars, which I find How really, crazy is that? How crazy? <laughs> don't you think they'd want to get... Now, HBO, give us all the movie stars. Yes. <laughs> right? So they cast Ricky Schroeder, who, by the way, is fantastic, who plays this character named Newt, and Newt is a fatherless, motherless boy that Augustus and McCall raise. But the truth is, and they tell you this very early on, Newt is the son of McCall, but he's the son of a prostitute that McCall was ashamed to have impregnated. And as a result, he will never admit his parentage of the boy, and yet he does raise the boy. But he won't give the boy his last name, nor tell the boy he's his father. Um... And Ricky Schroeder's really good in it. He plays it really pure of heart. And, you know, I was once a boy myself, and watching his performance and this character of Newt, you know, it made me nostalgic. It just made me nostalgic to be a person who thinks, what's ahead in my life? Questions, you know, what 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 great things am I going to come to in life um, versus where I'm at now, where oftentimes I look back. And I think, you know, Newt, it's just, the movie's got so much heart to it. And there are times where there are 
where there are parts of the movie I was just in tears and it, they weren't even sad. They were just so on the point of the human experience that I could not help but just say, this is what it's about. Like, this is what I really want out of entertainment, which is to feel something. And boy, the thing makes me feel. Steve, I'll let you talk about it. Well, I read the book. Which, by the way, I'm reading now. It's one of the best books I ever read. One of the best American novels I've, I've ever read. And I never saw the series. Wow. I can't believe I never saw the series. When it came out, I think Tom Shales of the Washington Post proclaimed it, um... Television's gone with the wind, which was not an insult back then. Yeah, right. <laughs> it might be now, yeah. but it isn't. But it isn't then. Yeah, it, everybody knew how great this movie was. To, to give you an idea, oh, what we keep saying it's a movie, but it's a miniseries. It's six hours long. That's true. Yeah, and you get to develop your character more than you could ever hope to. Yeah, in a in, in a movie. I'm sorry to cut you off because I've been doing yeah. all the talking, but I wanted to say this. I was listening to a podcast that Jeff Daniels was on. It was the Bill Simmons podcast, and they were asking Jeff Daniels about television, and he was saying that in television, it's great for the actor because it's the novel. When you get to do television, you get to do the full version of the character that only a novel can do versus what he called the um, the short story, which is the movie. Now, I don't think a two-hour movie is necessarily a short story, but that's how he looked at it. Anyways, continue. Well, no, I think that, that that's that's a really good point. So long as you're not... Like, a series can burn an actor out. Absolutely. Uh, eventually, uh, what you're seeing is the actor's personality. Finite, when you yeah. know it's fine. When you have a limited series, right. uh, uh, something like Roots, or, <laughs> or I'm showing my age, you know, Roots, or Rich Man, Poor yeah. Man, or this, yeah. you get to develop the entirety of the character not every you know? scene has to directly relate to the plot no and you don't have to cut out any fat and you know as you, any steak lover knows the fat is the most delicious part that's a that's a good point the, yeah the small details yeah um are, are incredible there's two characters when i read the book mm-hmm. it was almost unreadable uh, uh, uh a man it has two children with him yeah and what happens to them is, is it was almost unreadable. It was so heartbreaking yeah. what happened to it. They don't flinch. Fortunately, I think they do it earlier in the in, in this miniseries in the series. than they did. That's right. Because I knew it was coming because I'd read the yeah. novel. And mercifully, it came early. Yeah. <laughs> it came yeah. early because I didn't want to have to have to see this. Yeah. They, they did it pretty tastefully it's not as shattering as it is in the book but it's no. still really hard to take yeah this movie is totally uncompromising uh you talked about um you know the um the the is it call or call, mccall call yeah or uh, captain call i don't remember actually it's captain call you know what i, I think, think it's just yeah. call not mccall right although okay. he's of scottish ancestry and it's possible it originally was mccall he was born <laughs> in scotland he was born in scotland and augustus tells him you're not an american <laughs> Yeah, who would have, who would have believed? Yeah. I don't. I didn't remember that from yeah. the novel. I'm Even though Call at, is the ultimate American, he's the most capable guy in the bunch. Augustus is certainly very capable, but it's Call who. But is, he chooses not to. He chooses he, not to be. He'd right. rather he'd he's rather a romantic. just kick back. He's a romantic. Kick back and take it easy. That's right. Um, and you're, you're right. When the chips are down, yeah, he's he's incredible. Uh, he saves Diane Lane from yeah. this from this brutal, horrible uh, uh, villain. Indeed. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He's played he's by the guy from he, Apocalypse Now, the yes, cook, Frederick, Frederick uh, Forrest, who barely who is Duvall hated. Terrifying. By the way, Duvall oh, hated him. Yeah, couldn't stand him. I think I think it works perfectly. Yeah, then, right. You know? Yeah, um, they're may, enemies. May, maybe they did that. It is uh, Woodrow F. Call. It, it, yeah, is the name right. of the character. Um, he says, you know, he refuses to admit that um, Newt is his son. That's if right. this had been, if this, if they had compromised, you can yeah. see the studios saying you have to at the right. end, you have to have them embrace before yeah. they go off. You've got to have a hugging scene. 
No, this no hugging, no hugging. Like, fact, like a Seinfeld episode, they yeah. do. They are no. uncompromising, and it leaves Newt on a certain level changed, yeah, and hurt, and not for the better. So it's interesting yes. you say that because I'm, we're going to give this away at the very end of this whole thing. Um, Call has an opportunity to tell Newt he's his son, and Newt is very anxious. He already at this point he knows because Augustus has told him, and Newt is very anxiously waiting to hear it. And Call can't do it. He cannot say it. He still, to this day, for some reason, he can't find the tenderness in him to deliver this message to Newt, and he leaves. And he gives Newt his horse instead, which is a horse he beloved, you know, he loves. Now, another character says to Newt um, something basically like, you know, you, the way he was talking to you and the way he gave you that horse, you'd almost think you were his kin. Yeah. And instead of Newt saying, in the very moment I first saw, I thought Newt was going to be like, that's right. That's what he meant. And instead, he very angrily says, "I ain't nobody's kin." You want him. You want him to to recognize right. it was tough for call to give him this horse, and is basically right. admitting his parenthood. Yeah, right. You're absolutely right. He doesn't. Sometimes do it's it. not enough. A gesture is not enough. Yeah. And this movie does not pull that punch. Yeah. He really. That. So you, this this poor young man. Sorry, walks, this TV series. <laughs> yeah, but but it feels like a movie. And this poor yes. young man walks off more hurt, you know, as a result of it, and more damaged as a person. Um, you know, this, the, the, the interesting thing about this series is that I think there are lots of kinds of Westerns. There are lighthearted Westerns, which I think are the most rare, like Barbarossa and Butch Cassidy. There are, I think, what are the postmodern Westerns that Unforgiven really created, which look at the genre of Western itself and then turn it on its head. And they're very common now, whether they're a great movie like The Proposition, Unforgiven, and I know there are more. There are spaghetti westerns, which are their own thing, which I don't really love, but they're for, sim- for pure photography, they're fantastic. And then there are the John Ford westerns, which I call the romantic westerns, which have a sense of adventure and romanticism to them. And I believe this is the best one. I think this is the pinnacle of all those kinds of westerns. And what's super interesting is that the author of the novel said he had no intention of romanticizing the West, none whatsoever. And then in fact, he grew up in a small town like Lonesome Dove. And what he was trying to show was the brutality and the awfulness of the West and the sort of, you know, the emotional limitations of all his characters. And yet when people read it, they couldn't help but get swept up in the fantasy, which was not at all what he intended to do. And like any other pretentious artist, he sort of, whenever people be like, oh, I love Lonesome Dove, people be like, well, I'm glad someone does because I don't, <laughs> which is just infuriating. Larry McMurtry is, yeah. is a phenomenal writer and a, a versatile writer. Yeah. And he, he wrote um, the, Peter Bogdanovich's That's classic. Right, the Last Picture Show. The Last Picture That's Show, right. which is, you know, it's, it's kind of a Western too, yeah. but it's sort of a modern Western, mm-hmm. but kind of not. It's about the end of the um, Western. It's about when all the, these people have no more adventures left to go to, no more new places to go to. Yes, and they have to settle down. The Ben Johnson character, he represents. You, you can that. tell he's yeah. he's over. His time is over, that's and right. all you get left is. But even is, the young boys, is, uh, even the young boys, will never leave the well, town. That, that's the problem. All you have left yeah. uh, after this from, from this phenomenal yeah. rich culture is right. is what Jeff Bridges and Timothy Bottoms. And in many up ways, uh, to bring it back, um, Call and Augustus. They recognize that Montana is the last adventure. There will be no more left. The whole country will get settled, and once it's settled, there were no, there'll be no reason to go any place anymore. You know th- that kind of strikes back on um, the adventures of Huckleberry Finn. Th- th- yeah. This is like a hundred years, um, you know, going on. Yeah. At the very end of Huckleberry Finn, Huckleberry Finn thinks says, "I'm going to go out west because while it's still." wild yeah right you know yeah there, there there's this anxiety that civilization is creeping in way too fast and what yeah. what's going to happen to me and perhaps it has 
Yeah. But and it, that I guess that's part of the part of the myth, the, the anxiety yeah. that there's no more frontiers. Yeah. You know, pretty, pretty good theme. No, and and uh, I want to talk about Angelica Houston. Please, you know? she's fantastic. She is that character is is amazing, and she is terrific. Just when you you th- she has unbelievable reserves of nurturing. That's right. And, and loving. She she we're uh, all in love with her by the end. Yes, we're it, all. It's hard. Lo- yeah. It's hard not to. Yeah. But that woman is bitter. Yeah. She loves. She loves um Augustus, yeah. but she also hates him. For 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 for, and for ruining hates, the potential. And she hates Call too. Oh, she hates Captain. More, Call. Oh, more obviously yeah. more than for denying her right. Gus. Gus found adventure with Call yeah. more enticing yeah. than a home. Augu- stable Augustus home. chose fraternity over love. Yeah. He chose male fraternity over love and family. It's a really interesting thing. Which you know, it's very odd. I think especially in modern films. And stories to see two adult men who have chosen to spend their life together. I mean, these are truly heterosexual life partners. These are friends who are married to each other in many ways, and they bickered like married people. And the reason Augustus even goes on this trip to begin with is that he knows he will pass through, um, I believe it's, it's not Arkansas, is it? I thought it was, uh... No, 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 it's, it's Wyoming. Farther north. Is it Wyoming? I yeah. think it's Wyoming. He knows he'll pass through um, Angelica Houston's home. Her name's Clara. In one final attempt to sort of win her back, and she's got this. She's carved out yeah. what their future should have been. She's yeah. got this beautiful large right. home, right. a successful uh, ranch farm, yeah. uh, civil yeah. civilization. Yeah, everything that should appeal to him, but he knows he feels it's it's. And it's he, suppressing. I don't want to say it's a trap because that's and too And you typical. never know whether or not he has regrets over it. And sometimes he says he does and sometimes he says he doesn't. Um, but he chose the life with this guy, Call. And Clara hates Call more for it. Um, and she, in some ways, she she finds excuses to hate Call. She hates him for taking Augustus away, but she also hates him for you know not accepting parentage over Newt, even though he did parent Newt. He did. I mean, without him, Newt would have been on the streets. He would have had, but yet at the same time, he's obligated to. He's his father. He's not doing him any favor. Yeah, but but Clara is the kind of character yeah. who doesn't want nonsense. Yeah. She wants people to be direct. That's right. Um, and and she sees that uh, Woodrow can't do it. He can't even face he, he yeah. can't even face his own past. Gus um had a chance with Clara yeah. and he blew it. He does. Right? That's right. And he does have a kind of a second chance, but he has a third chance also. With the Diane Lane character, yeah, um, I think Lorena. I'm yeah. Looking up on the IMDb, Lorena, who is a prostitute, uh, by the way. This is important to her character, right? Right, because um, they actually get into what what are her options as a prostitute in life. It's not the they tri- don't skim over it. Right. The very treatment of this is yeah. probably more light than than nowadays people would be comfortable with. But right. I think it's closer to the truth. Yeah, you know, because that's how. The, the nature of, of West, you didn't have, you know, an equal number of men and women. Yeah. You know, if if there was an attraction between uh, two people, it would be a weird kind of attraction which, between a prostitute and a customer, which pe- people don't want to acknowledge now because yeah. it's it's considered, you know, uh, exploit and it has to be an exploitative um, relationship. But they don't take, you know, they don't take a condemning view. Nope. In fact, after he saves her. She becomes completely emotionally reliant on yeah, him. Yeah, she's dependent on him. Yes, one hundred percent. Yes, and and she's and, scared when he's not around. Yes, 
she needs him to feel safe. Which I even even she's pretty safe with Clara. She, she, it's, yeah. you, know, you get by the end of the movie, she's going to gain something she never had before, which was independence. That she's going to learn how to take care of herself. Which this character, she just literally she bounces from one man to another, yeah. searching for a protector. Um, because it's a harsh world, um, especially for a woman in her position. Now we've been talking about this series as if it's one story that stays on track, but the truth is. There's tons of little side stories. Um, we skipped over several very important, uh, yeah. so, you know. So, for instance, we've got an American Indian who's really a terrible villain. He's a horrible killer in the movie. His name is Blue Duck. There is a, Was he a half-breed? I think um, what they called a half-breed. I don't uh, think so. I think just the fact the white man played him. But uh-huh. I don't remember. I honestly don't remember. He, I don't think he was was of mixed genealogy at all. Clearly he was raised as a Native American. Yeah. And yet he, he with no problem whatsoever, he will kill he's Indians. A, he's, a brutal, um, he's a brutal killer that even the Indians fear. Yes, yes. Um, then there's another character named Jake Spoon, who is the guy that started this journey up north to begin with. And he falls in with a gang led by a psychotic killer, much like the one from Winchester. Um, I mean, just oh, a yeah, real... Oh, yeah, that is a good point. A I didn't think about real that, yeah. psychopath, like... And then there was another side story where basically this character, this sheriff named July Johnson, who's from Arkansas, is tracking Jake Spoon because Jake Spoon killed a dentist who hap- in, in an accident who happened to be July's brother. And it starts off where July leaves home and he takes his stepson with him on this journey to find Jake Spoon at the request of his wife. But what you find out is that his wife is actually pregnant with another man's baby, and she wants, she hates her husband, uh, J- July Johnson, and she wants to leave and find this other guy who has impregnated her. And out of all the villains in the movie or the series, <laughs> she's the biggest one. <laughs> she, she is probably the most the most heartless. Yeah, I mean, yeah. what in the world is this lady like? <laughs> Just this whole time, she's just not a virtue in her. <laughs> Playing with this wonderful actress called Glenn Headley, who um, sadly just passed away a few years ago. Um, she, when we first see her, she seems like a sweet homebody. Yeah. But there's also something a little. Uh, there's a wandering she's eye. You catch up. Yes, she's yes. horribly dissatisfied. But they don't give her an excuse to be. It seems like her husband's a good man. She's got a nice son. Yeah, she's she, she's got a place in the community. But all she can think about is this outlaw. She has to get. This to. is not the story of an oppressed woman who you know takes off the shackles of womanhood and no. you know being have to be a homemaker to go <laughs> strike it out and be an independent person she's a really despicable character this she is- endangers the life <laughs> of her son she runs out on the family she takes up with bandits and she's just she doesn't have an ounce of heart in her i mean it's just shocking all she wants is the forbidden love of a scumbag <laughs> Her her husband, who's nothing but heart. Yeah, and he's kind nothing but to her. heart. When he tries to win her back later in the show, he finally meets up with her and tells her. Uh, he, I think he tells him about her son. Yeah, and and uh, her, well, I don't want to give too much away. Something very important about her son, and all she can think of is they're gonna hang. You yeah, know, this my, guy I'm trying to get must, to. Yeah, they they just hanged him. That's all she can think about, and he realizes she's gone. For him, she's gone. You can sort of figure out most of the characters in this story and what what the writer was trying to do with them, like why they were necessary. But I'm not sure about this woman <laughs> unless he had been wronged by a terrible woman and he just had to create the representation of her in fictional form. Well, I, I think he wanted to show that, you know, not all women I mean, yeah, no, are, go for are, are perfect. You know, yeah. you've got these two 
phenomenal, very desirable women in Clara and yeah. Lorena, um, you have to have somebody who's kind of a scumbag. Let's yeah. face it. Is she, yeah. she, she's an asshole. <laughs> yeah, it's good that he, you know, he says, I'm making a tapestry of humanity. Yeah. And I'm doing it in the West. And I'm going to have every type of person. And Lord knows he fills it up with plenty of bad guys. Yeah. He's like, so we're going to have one woman in here. And he's like, what's the worst kind of woman I can think of? Well, it's not some sort of killer, right? It's not some brutal. He's got his he's got his men who are just brutal, violent men. Women simply didn't have the power to be like that. Yeah. Um, tragically, no. you know, back yeah. then, they simply didn't have the power. Now they can, now they can go around and kill as many people as they like. Thank God. <laughs> well, there, there's more opportunities. Yeah, there's more opportunities for female serial killers. <laughs> God bless America. <laughs> Yeah, I know. The, the, no, the but, trans- well, but but yeah. realistically, you know, you're not gonna you're not gonna have an Annie Oakley shooting up people, right? You know, he had to show you know a woman. So you get a, you gotta wonder is it is does she represent the woman who wants the bad guy? How there's nice oh, men out absolutely. there. Absolutely, she she predicates. Yeah, you know, and that uh, this is the villainous this yeah, is well, the absolutely. villainous female in, in society where she's got you know a man who will treat her with tenderness and kindness, and all she wants is the bad boy. Now you, you you call her a villain, right? Yeah. I I would say that there's something almost I can't say admirable, but there's something impressive of her one direction. Yeah. <laughs> she is so single focused on finding that man. Yeah. She is indifferent to the fate of her yeah. adolescent son. She's she's, border, she's yeah. borderline psychotic. Yeah. You know, I mean, it's just she has no problem taking it with two scumbags. One of yeah. which is Steve Buscemi, and the other is is a barely a, he's a, actually a barely he's, literate, a, he's, a, um, he's a successful character actor. The other guy, I just don't remember his name. Yeah, I, I don't either. But he he he's a man of very few words because he doesn't know very many words. He's he's a he's a large Lenny kind of um, guy who can't express himself. He's earnest. Yeah. And everything for them, you know, it doesn't turn out great for them. Oh, and by the way, this was also the studio's opportunity to push upon us the actor D.B. Sweeney, um, who never really, <laughs> who never really achieved whatever anybody intended for him in life. But he plays the character well, especially well when you read the book. Yeah. There are a couple of characters who yeah, he's are very well cast. They don't survive because they're weak. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Now. He, D.B. Sweeney, the character, is he alive is, at the end. He didn't weak. survive. He yeah, didn't, right. he, he, and he's, he's doomed. He's going to be doomed. Yeah. It, fate has him low. He's weak. Yeah. So I thought... And this movie is not kind to weak people. Yeah, and I thought he was poorly cast until I started reading the book. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, because he's supposed to play this really talented ranch hand, but I didn't realize how pathetic the character really is supposed to be. <laughs> and he nails it. Um, and it's kind of sad because I kind of think of D.B. Sweeney that way anyways. <laughs> um, but, you know, this movie is just like, or this this series, it tackles so many different things in life. It's just full of small moments that are about, you know, saying something about is about life is a really generic statement. And yet when it happens, I think we owe it to us to say, no, you know what? They did it. They made a tapestry of life. They were able to do it in six hours. It wasn't about, you know, the brutality of life or simply lost love in life or what it's like to grow up. It's about all of it. And I think that... And they couldn't have done that in a two-hour movie. No, never. And I think, you know, we make these stupid lists, AFI lists, this, that, and the other thing. Lonesome Dove is criminally not talked about. Just criminal. It is one of the greatest works of cinema in American history. It just has to be. I, I can think of very few things that are that emotional and that wide ranging. Nobody talks about it. 
I think it's one of the most mature explorations of regret. Yeah, there's so 100%. much regret. Yeah, and even you know, uh, let's face it, Gus's life has been practically a party up till now. Yeah, it's right. been a wonderful, fun. He 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 expresses a, a little bit of regret. Maybe we we hunted the wrong people. Yeah, maybe we should have hunted the white people out of out, out of this. But yeah. he certainly has far more profound uh, regret about uh, you know Clara. Yeah, um, and. It's very it, it's very poignant. I can see why you would be crying because it's it's um not that I would ever cry. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know, I but uh, it is very moving and the stuff you can't do anything about but still affects your life. Yeah, I mean it's um I would highly recommend anybody at any time watch this miniseries and and one of the things that's such a strength to it is that it does something that TV and movies just cannot figure out today, which is that. Its ending is stronger than its beginning. You know, this series, as a, the third and fourth episodes of this series are masterpieces unto their own right. And the first and second episodes are building up to them. Yeah, they, 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 the first and second episode laid the groundwork for the yeah. emotional yeah. devastation that, that these characters and now go through. everything, whether it's, you know, uh, Game of Thrones or it's Westworld or it's the Marvel movies or whatever it is today, everything is all about the big opening. Let's catch them now. You know, people have no attention span. Let's get them now. And then they always end weak. Thank you, Steven Spielberg, for Jaws. Only he didn't end yeah, that week. Right. I, honestly, I think I think everybody learned maybe the wrong lesson from Jaws. Yeah, right. I don't think any any movie started and as J.J. Abrams is also to blame, and he's also the new Steven Spielberg. <laughs> Nowhere near as good, right? But he he is literally like they if Steven Spielberg had a less talented son. But what is the number one thing everybody complains about in water cooler television and movies? It's the endings. And part of the reason is because nobody's willing to allow a show or a movie to build that groundwork, to, yeah. to, to make you say, no, no, you're in chapter one. Nobody reads chapter one of a book and says, well, you know, that wasn't a cliffhanger. <laughs> so, I'm, I'm, so I'm out, yeah. So, yeah, you know. You don't have to knock somebody over. Yeah. You can lay the You don't the need groundwork. a bomb in the first scene. I... I was watching this movie. Um, it takes 200 pages in the novel Lonesome Dove of like an 800 page book before they even leave Lonesome <laughs> Dove. <laughs> I actually kind of liked some of those scenes where they're in Lonesome Dove. Yeah. And I kind of was kind of a little sorry that they were leaving. You well, know? Also, the way the book drifts for 200 pages, that's been their life for the last 10 years in Lonesome Dove. Yeah. It's a big nothing. You know, so when you get on the adventure, you're like, finally. But you know what? That's how they felt. <laughs> One other thing. It's, it's a small thing. I didn't, I couldn't detect where the commercial breaks were. So I don't know who edited this for, I think I saw it on one of the, one of the pay channels. Yeah. I don't know who edited this, but they did a great job of getting rid of that stupid, you know, dip to black yeah, where the yeah. commercial would be. They did a terrific job uh, dressing this up I to watch it I wonder if they the actually through. went retroactively and took those out. I, 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 they, I think they must have. But, but people don't do that. I, I just don't like, someone would have had to take the time and say, you know what, when we re-release Lonesome Dove, we better get rid of these commercial breaks. I, I don't think that's common. So I think they just did a really nice job. Like, So the series Mad Men, they always thumb their noses at the television executives and the, the ad executives by never including those in the show. So Mad Men always had commercial breaks at the strangest times. Scenes would just <laughs> cut in the middle, you know, because they had to figure out a way. And they did that on purpose to piss them off. <laughs> well, I'd like to think uh, I'd like to think that was that was the case here. Um, I, I don't know how to explain. It. Now, the the ending, you know, at, at the end of the episode, the hour and a half episode, it was very. It, it usually is very yeah, obvious, they, but they have title cards at the yeah, beginning, yeah. and it's very apparent. 
But um, they did a nice job of of making you think that this was an hour and a half movie part one. Yeah. This is one of the greatest things ever made. And I would say for how good it is, maybe the most criminally under talked about or undervalued. I cannot think of something I cannot think of something as good as this when we're talking like Godfather level quality that just people like, oh, I don't even know that exists. Very strange. Thank goodness for these pay cable shows that yeah. that bring it that, that bring it about uh, bring some attention to it. And also, it's a lost art sentimentality. We are really drifting into a society and a and an entertainment industry that thinks life is so grim, and that all we want to see is the grimness of life, the Joker style, and everybody applauds. Yeah, they really showed us how dark society is, which is just nonsense. Yeah, they think that's that's some sort of form of honesty. Yeah. But it's I not. think it's the, I think it's um cynicism, it's the flip side of naivete. Most people on their way out on their deathbed want more life. <laughs> you know, they're not thinking about God, I can't wait, I hate in New York City, boy. You can't wait to die. <laughs> this movie celebrates life doesn't it, it doesn't shy away from the grimness some of the most grim yeah, scenes you sure. probably had, had ever been shown up to that point yeah. you didn't have you know children being killed frankly you didn't, you didn't have that you had it here some of it's really tough it's an incredibly rewarding series uh to, but one last yeah, to please. give you an idea of how fraudulent the emmys are this movie did not win uh best actor for robert duvall <laughs> Did, did at least did wait? That's crazy. Yes, I was trying to like wrap my head around that. I couldn't even like when you said Robert Duvall, I was thinking like he said like like Danny Glover. Like yeah, it's just. But you know what? The Emmys are like the Grammys. They're trash, and so are the Oscars. They're all <laughs> trash. And I just want to say this for the millionth time: nobody should ever make a movie to win awards. You should make a movie hoping it it lasts the test of time. Right? What you want is something that people talk about for years to come. Um, first you want to make something good and then you want to make something that people talk about for years to come. And I think they achieved 75% of that in this where it's obviously good and some people are still talking about it, but not everybody. It's not like Lawrence of Arabia where everyone's still talking about it. It's not like the Godfather. It somehow missed that mark and it's unfortunate because it's really just as good. I think uh, the average person, if you said Lonesome Dove, they would have a, at best, a a hazy notion of what you're talking about. And that's, it's important. The, the awards... I you know I, I do follow them and I, I used to be a big follower uh, bigger than I am now. They do mark as to uh, what the industry feels is yeah. top quality, and and we, now not to, James Woods won for for a uh, some sort of miniseries. I'm surprised you even know this. Why I looked it up? Okay. I looked, it, but I had known. Yeah, I had known at the time. It didn't win best miniseries. I wore in remembrance. Yeah, got it. Uh, you know that that huge thing with with uh, Robert Mitchum. Um. Un- unfathomable it's it's amazing how they'll, they'll p- make a safe pick yeah you know world war ii epic versus something that's truly challenging i understand your outrage when you take one thing and you put it against another thing and the one thing's clearly better and then whoever decides the winner says you know it's something else and you say well it's crazy this thing's obviously better than that thing but i think the notion of outrage over these awards of art is insane because we only do it in music, movies, and television. I guess we do it in books too, but there doesn't seem to be as much of a hubbub alert. Like, there's not a, a televised broadcast where they say, mm-hmm. you know, uh, Lonesome Dove up against the road. Like, That's because only three people left in America read books. But uh, Yeah, it's a know, fair some point. Some people care about the Pulitzer or the National Book Award, but you're right. Not, not, it's, they're not but televised. The, the awards are one of these things where they do have a purpose when they shine a light on a good movie, as they yeah. did with Moonlight, where 
more people saw Moonlight as a result of it winning the Oscar. But at the end of the day, which is what they're supposed to do. They're not supposed to be necessarily. Well, sometimes a if, if a movie's popular. a great hit and it's a great movie, you can award it. You don't have to award it to the lesser successful movies so that it will be seen more, right? What did somebody say? If a if, if a masterpiece is also well received, it's been misunderstood. I don't. Yikes! Know. That's that's kind of rough on the on the podcast. I, I don't agree with that. I think people understood Lawrence Arabia. Do you think you, you think uh, people really got? what The Godfather and The Godfather 2 were all about, or did they yeah. like The Bloodlust? No, I think people got what it was about, and I think that um, at the end of the day, those awards are only from in, from people in the industry, and they there are so many best Oscar movie winners that nobody talks about, That's and true. that says it all. Nobody cares what the people in the industry... We, we, we feign outrage for maybe one year over it, and then we still talk about the movie that should have won, when instead we should just say, hey, you know what was a great movie? Like... Mad Max was a great movie. I don't need to contrast Mad Max to Spotlight. It's not necessary. When I talk about what a great movie Mad Max is, I don't say, hey, you know what, Steve, what movie you should watch? Mad Max, because Spotlight wasn't a great movie, which Spotlight obviously beat Mad Max for the Oscar. But that's not the point. Mad Max is the winner because I'm still talking. People love Mad Max to this day. Nobody cares about Spotlight. Nobody cares about Crash. Nobody cares about... The artist. Nobody cares about... No one will care about the Green Book. Um, you know, who cares? So, yeah, is it an outrage in terms of the situation itself? Sure. But the movie that won Best Picture that nobody cares about is still the loser at the end of the day. Well, don't get me wrong. I don't think that um, the the reason, like, like you said, Lowe's and the Dove is criminally ignored now is because it didn't win the Emmy. We just want more um, people to see it. <laughs> we just want more people to see Lowe's yes. Dove, more people to talk about it. Right. Emmy or not... It's it's one of the best things television has ever done. One of the best things movies has ever done. Yes. Even though it's not a movie. Well, I'm glad we got to talk about this. I love Lonesome Dove. I really like these R2 movies. Steve, it's always a pleasure. Until we see you guys next time. Sounds good.